Well, if you would, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. This morning we will be in verses 18 through 22. You know, as we continued our series, Living as Exiles, and we continued to remain in this section that deals with suffering, suffering in a right way, suffering for the right reasons, namely for righteousness' sake, for justice, and ultimately for the sake of the gospel. And certainly there's no benefit at all for us to suffer because we choose to respond to difficulty in an ungodly way, okay? So like we respond as the world would to when they are reviled, they revile back or to suffer as a result of sin, whether personal or private sin, or because we are publicly sinning, whether it's something as extreme as committing a crime, there's suffering as a result, but that's just. Also, we sometimes can get angry in our responses to certain things and actually act out in certain ways, and in doing so, we may end up suffering, and there's no real benefit to that. So... Sorry about the. We'll have a memorial service for the bass guitar later after the service. <laughs> the bass guitar just fell, so. Um, but don't fret. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Suzanne. My, my dad joke game is incredibly strong. My kids. I don't know if they'll ever actually acknowledge anything in the positive because they live so much of their life doing this. But it's okay, we'll move on. But in light of all that, as we talk about this idea of suffering, one of the things that that Peter does regularly is to remind us of not just the ultimate cause, like for instance, as we looked last week, to be ready to make a defense because as the world sees us suffer in a right way for the right reasons, they may ask us, why do you have the hope that you do? Why are you responding in this way? But he also reminds us, and Peter does a, a regular job of this in also his second letter, he reminds the church of the encouragement and the courage that comes from doing this, that basically it's not just this kind of payback mentality, oh, Jesus has saved you, therefore you should really suffer for him too, in a sense almost to pay him back. That goes against actually the accord of the gospel. We cannot pay him back for anything that he's done. All we can do is glorify his name and live freely from sin because we've been freed from having to sin, so to speak. And we are free then to honor him and glorify him in our lives. And Peter regularly encourages courage to respond to the greatest difficulties. He himself, under Nero's reign, about to be martyred. And in doing so, he gives this courage of the fact that no harm can really come to you, as we spoke of last week in verse, uh, let's see, that was in verse, I think, 13, when he gave this rhetorical question of what harm can come to you if you suffer for doing rightly. Ultimately, he's leading into where we are today, which is talking about basically the resurrection. This is why we've sung so much about the resurrection even this morning, that in the resurrection we have victory. We have victory where truly no harm, even if we are, do experience harm, so to speak, it's not real, lasting, or eternal harm that happens to us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is true and legit victory. And that should embolden our ability to endure. That should encourage us to last. In effect, it causes us to endure in suffering in the right way, endure in suffering for the right reasons. 
Not being short-sighted in feeling good about ourselves because we gave a zinger back to someone. Or that in a world of vast injustice, we, we saw, at least in our own world, justice served and vengeance enacted. It's impossible not to think of the people in Ukraine in light of this passage even today. I want us to go back and read verses 13 through 17. So if you would, look at your text and verses 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now skip to chapter 4. I want us to read the first two verses of chapter 4. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Okay? For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now keep that in mind as we now read 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. God, I do pray that you would give us understanding. I pray that you would give me simplicity of words for a text that actually is very difficult, that we would not miss the main idea, the main point, and then ultimately find what I believe you have for us, which is emboldened courage to suffer well, suffer rightly, if you do choose for us to suffer, so that we do give a defense, so that we are ready to give a defense, so that we find our joy resting in the resurrected Christ, in the victory that we already have in you, in the inheritance that is to come, which radically influences the kind and the tone of our defense. That we are introducing truly good news to a lost, hopeless, and hurting world. Help us even now. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So as I've said, our text really today, when you consider it about what we read in verses 13 through 17, and then as he begins in chapter 4, it's about us being equipped with greater courage to suffer well, suffer rightly, suffer for doing good. But all this is bound up in the fact that Christ is the victor. 
Christ is one. Because of the resurrection of Christ, because he has truly died but been raised in the spirit, that we know that Christ is ultimately victorious. And he's victorious over all of creation. Both human beings, spiritual forces, demons, angels, principalities. He is victorious. All because of the resurrection. If you keep that in mind, then we will rightly understand what by many is considered the absolutely most difficult section of the New Testament for some, even all of Scripture, to interpret well. I have no desire to... Uh, it's not even about impression because at this point, it's, it, it, it's basically when you, you know, if there was like an, an eight-stage cancer and you live, that would be really impressive and there's not an eight-stage. But I'm just saying if you live past that, that's impressive, right? I mean, I feel like that with this text, that just surviving it is going to be a good thing. But I do want you to understand that the illustration that Peter gives us here actually serves the bigger picture. But I also got to tell you that one of my pastoral asides in this is for us as we walk through a difficult passage to learn maybe a little bit about how do we interpret Scripture, especially passages that aren't incredibly clear, what is the process that we go through, what we might call the hermeneutic? How do we interpret Scripture? Because you, as a royal priesthood, are called to handle the Scriptures and to handle them rightly, okay? We're, there's no priest. There's no division. We all have the same Christ. We're all good with God simply because our being righteous before Him because of Christ, not because of calling or position. So I hope that maybe in this too, you might see some principles that will remind you. So don't hesitate to take some notes on principles that maybe I would mention that aren't necessarily part of our main approach this morning. In fact, our approach is going to be a little bit different this morning than having this nice clean cut outline. I'm simply going to walk through the text. And then after I walk through the text, we're going to glance back through the text for our application, our application of courage. So let's first just go through this text. Christ suffered for our sins simply so that we would live. That's right off the bat. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that, we, that he might bring us to God. Let's just stop there for a minute. Christ suffered for our sins that we may live. And even in this short portion of this passage, you have some very clear perspectives of what the suffering of Christ entailed. One of the first things would be his atoning sacrifice. He says that we are the sinners, okay? He suffered, and he suffered once, okay? I'm not going to do a lot of cross-references here. We study this quite a bit, but um, I would encourage you to go to Hebrews chapter 9. That would be a fantastic place to go and do a long, slow reading of what the sufficient singular soul and sufficient sacrifice of Christ is and why. But for our purposes, I just want to briskly kind of go through this to say Christ suffered for sin so that we might live. And what that meant, first of all, is that he had to atone for our sins. Because God is holy and God is just, his requirement on men has always been perfection. But men have always proved, in fact, when the in the coming of the law, the law itself proved that we could not keep our end of the bargain. We could not keep our end of the covenant, so to speak, because we are lawbreakers. We are sinners. The law basically just gave verbal definition to the things we were already doing in our hearts. We are sinners 
in need of something else if we desire or even hope to be saved. Christ is the one who came. He's the one that was prophesied about. In chapter 1, 11, and 12, Peter talked about how the Spirit of Christ, he is preaching, was preaching through prophets. And he was even preached about through the prophets that he would be coming. In atoning sacrifice, it means that he has bore the sin and the wrath that sin deserves in himself once. Once. Not over and over again. Whereas in the Old Testament, there was sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. No, Christ's atoning sacrifice was singular and sufficient. Why? Because of the resurrection. He was slaughtered for our sin. Perfect, spotless Lamb of God. No other provision that had ever been made throughout time for humans to see the typology of what Christ what God demanded for people, the different sacrifices and priests, none of it would suffice. So God provides his own. And this is Christ. So he atones for our sin in his death on the tree. He sheds blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission, removal of sin. So this atonement, this atoning sacrifice of Christ was necessary for us to live. We have no hope of living if we have to bear the sacrifice. You know why? Because we're not getting off that altar. We will die in our sins and trespasses. We will spend eternity in hell apart from him, apart from Christ doing it for us. The sacrifice, this atoning sacrifice was therefore substitutionary, meaning he did it in our place. We couldn't do it. He did it for us. But there's also this idea of, of, and I don't like using more academic sounding terminology while preaching, but there is this idea of imputing or imputed righteousness. So we have atoning sacrifice and we have imputing righteousness. And what that means simply is when you look at the text, it says, it says that when he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Romans 3 is very clear. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of God's standard. There's only one who did not and could not and in, in not falling prey to temptation and living a perfect life, we are saved by Christ's life, his righteous living, so that in his dying, for those that are then brought to him by faith, we actually accept what he did in his life. We also accept that that penalty that cost him on the cross should have been ours, but he did it for us. And in order to present us to God, in order to make us okay with God, he gives us his righteousness in exchange for ours. Ours is not washed and made clean. It is replaced. It is an exchange. So the righteous for the unrighteous means that Christ the righteous one takes our unrighteousness, bore it on the tree. God himself turning his face as he's bearing the full weight of the wrath of God for the unrighteousness of sinners like us. And when we receive him by faith, that being shown by our repentance and turning to him. 
He gives us his righteousness. Therefore, when God looks upon us, even consider this. So often at funerals, we say things that are biblical to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But what if so much of that reference is actually about God looking at the son of what he's done yet again with another saint that's come home? Well done, my good and faithful servant, because we are there only on the basis of what Christ accomplished, his righteousness for our unrighteousness. He put his righteousness in us and took and killed and crucified our unrighteousness never to be raised from the dead ever again. Not our unrighteousness, no. So when he rose from the dead, singular once he died. Singular once he gave us his righteousness, which means since he's alive, his righteousness persists and therefore so does our salvation. It's not because of the strength of your prayer or all that you understood. It's about the strength of your Savior and the fact that He is perpetual. He is alive. And then He says here, just so we know very clearly, He says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is a really important section of this passage because it simply means this. It doesn't mean that Christ was disembodied in the sense that He was... Uh, He spent some time in dual stances as far as his flesh is one place, his spirit's another. The idea here is simply what we all would experience, which is once we die and our bodies are in the grave, spiritually, just like when Christ is looking at the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, but his body is still wasting in the grave. What he means by this is Christ actually did, as a human being, die. He died in the flesh. And just like we would experience if we die before his coming and we are made new with new bodies, our spirits go to be with him in a very real way right now upon our deaths. But at some point in the future, who we are spiritually in very real presence with the Father, very real presence with the Son, When he returns, the Spirit of God will give life and breath to new physical bodies that will meet up with spirit and flesh together. Now, I know this sounds really mysterious, but consider this. After the resurrection, okay, over in John, John chapter 20, I believe it is, you have Mary come to him and he says, I've not ascended yet. I've not ascended yet. Don't touch me. Christ, when he died, his spirit was with the Father, just like it happens for us. But because he had not yet ascended, just like we will see in the future, when he does ascend there at the Sea of Galilee in the first part of Acts, and his body goes up and is with his spirit, and he then is, and I still believe he is fully human and fully divine even now. But he has that glorified body even now, in advance of when we will have that as well. He's that forerunner for us. But it had not happened yet just after the resurrection. Now think about that for just a minute. Well, I don't know about thinking about it as much as carry that with you into this next part, which is if Christ suffered for our sins that we may live, that he may bring us to God, and in doing so, he had to actually die and he had to actually be raised from the dead according to the Spirit, by the Spirit, and in the Spirit, then we also then can understand the second part that we have beginning in verse 19, which is Christ rose proclaiming victory then over all enemies. Because when he rose, he rose from the dead, the singularity of his sacrifice is then made secure forever. The sufficiency of his sacrifice is enough forever. 
The fact that the power of Satan in death is then conquered forever. Now, I need you to stay with me, and I have purposefully written down much of this so that, because these aren't rabbit trails. These are, this is like quantum physics rabbit holes, wormholes, and I don't want to go down any of them. So, let me go ahead and read the text. After saying that he was made, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, And then he says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So not only does he give us, Peter, this fantastic and difficult section about, okay, the Spirit of Christ is going where and doing what and when, but then he throws in there this statement that sounds like if you are baptized, then you're saved, but if you're not baptized, you're not saved, which we wouldn't say really meshes with Scripture. So thanks, Peter. This is tough. Well, there's various viewpoints on this, and let me start by simply saying this. In fact, there's, there's actually more than a dozen different viewpoints of what happens in this text and what's being said in this text. But here's, what I want to, here's, here's where I want to inform you and give some instruction. When we are interpreting Scripture, especially difficult passages, we start with the immediate context of that text. So we start with the surrounding verses, then we start with the surrounding chapter and that book, And if there is a person like Peter who's written a couple of different letters, we look at both of those letters. And then we expand out to the teaching of the New Testament and then the teaching of Scripture altogether. And then we take that weight. And in sometimes, most of the time I would say we are satisfied with what we get by that approach. But sometimes you get to the end of that and it's still not clear. So then you have to run to places like church history. One of my big concerns, in fact, I had a conversation with a a professor of history at Westminster Theological Seminary a few weeks ago about this very issue of how do we better normalize teaching church history in the local church because we have missed out on this part of our hermeneutic. Basically, once we really look at the scripture well and the weight of that scripture informs our interpretation, it's also important for us to humbly look at church history on what are the great, what are the ancients, what are the the great saints of old, how did they interpret these passages? We've skipped all that and gone right to cultural understanding. Well, God surely didn't really mean this. God's not like that. So, I mean, he doesn't. And we skip a whole very significant portion. And that is how we run into error. So historically speaking, you know, I run to people, trusted sources like Martin Luther. But Martin Luther says this, quote, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the, in the Testament. So that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand and I cannot explain it. And there has been no one who has explained it. Thank you, Marty. <laughs> so sometimes what we have to look at is what does it certainly not mean? There's a couple of things there. Okay, so again, let me remind you of the text. In which, so in the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So that gives us some some picture, some idea. Okay, so here's what we know it's not because this is where the context of scripture informs us. 
We know it's not that he is preaching to those. Now, follow me here because this is largely what many of us believe. And this is what I actually probably believed early. And then I I transferred to another. And I'll give you my path in just a minute. Um, But he did not preach to those who had died in the flood in order to offer them salvation. But you can see where someone might get that, though, where he goes in the Spirit to those who disobeyed basically during the times of Noah while the ark is being prepared. But there is no indication anywhere in Scripture, even though there are certainly religious groups who have lasted for a real long time who have built entire doctrines on this obscure passage, there is no post-mortem opportunity to come to Christ. When you die in the flesh, if you are not raised by the Spirit of God because you have the righteousness of Christ, you will not be raised to new life in Him in any circumstance. So this text does not mean that Christ went to those who died in the flood to offer them a chance to come to Him. Now, largely there's good reason for that because they were already being preached to by Noah to repent of their sin and to come to faith. And they rejected it. They mocked the truth. But we know it doesn't mean that. I would also say this. It doesn't mean that he descended into hell itself, as we know the residing place or at least the keeping place for Satan, as if to pay a ransom to Satan. Satan holds no hold at all over our souls. The wrath of God that was appeased by Christ was to God. We are reconciled to God. Jesus does not have to pay off the evil one in order for us to get to God. Yes, in our sin, we are subject to our father, Satan. And I know it's a terribly difficult phrase, but it's a biblical one. We are bound to our father, Satan, in our sin. But he's not the one that gets the payoff. He's not the one for whom Christ died. He's not the one for whom the blood was shed and that was acted as payment for us to know God. The wrath of God had to be satisfied in order for us to be with God. We had to be reconciled to God, not via Satan, but to God. So it doesn't mean that he went to hell to pay Satan off, basically as if we've been kidnapped and that's the ransom for our soul. There are three historically prominent positions that I think you could mostly group these more than a dozen under. Now, a guy named Edmund Clowney really helped me with this by summarizing this. And Edmund Clowney was a a professor and a pastor. He he had a lot of time at Westminster in Philadelphia. Um, Faithful, faithful guy. I love his writings on preaching. First of all, through Origen, one of the early fathers. Origen believed that he did preach the gospel to those who died in the flood but either for salvation or just the announcement of their coming judgment. So Origen, even though he, he was not comfortable necessarily with a post-mortem opportunity for salvation, but he said it is possible that he still went to those who died during the flood to declare victory and say, this is where all of what Noah was preaching was heading towards me, Christ, risen from the dead. So you have this Origen perspective. And I would say that Apart from the post-mortem opportunity, that was probably my first viewpoint as a kid when I first heard this passage was that he went and preached to all of these who died in the flood to show them. Okay, but I didn't really think about where the outworking was of that, kind of the na-na-na-na-na effect, the gloating effect of Jesus over those who were going to burn in hell forever. 
Then for most of my older youth, young adulthood, I would say that it was more in the Augustinian view. Augustine, who is one of my favorite early church fathers, he believed that Christ preached in the Spirit through Noah. And there's actually some, a strong case to be made for this. So the other one is more like, you know, it kind of sounds like this. At least here we have some textual and contextual evidence that could give weight to it. And so what he means by this is basically that when he says that in the Spirit he preached to those who were in prison, it doesn't mean, Augustine didn't believe that it meant that Christ died and in, those, in that day and a half that he's actually in, or you know, however you look at it, but it's on the third day, right? But it's really only two nights, however you look at it. But in the Spirit during that time, right before the resurrection, that Christ goes and preaches in hell. Well, no, Augustine didn't say that. What Augustine was saying was, What's happening here in the Spirit was that the Spirit of Christ was actually preaching through Noah at the time of Noah, a call to repentance and faith, and it was all pointing to this. And that's, that's what I've held to. In fact, again, guys, look, there's no, I mean, look, I mean, Marty already told us that this is impossible. So um, the fact is, is that we have to come to this humbly, hold to it loosely. This is the open hand belief but it does have to be informed by Scripture. And, and there is some information here. So if you go back to uh, verses 10 and 11, First uh, Peter, I mean, look at what he says just a couple of chapters prior. He says, concerning this salvation, so this is 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So at least there's some contextual evidence, but it still doesn't bear enough weight for me in the context because even though we're looking contextually, there are some things that are a little bit clearer because just because it says the word spirit and Christ doesn't mean that's what, that's exactly the corresponding reference. So we have to keep that in mind. And I believe he is talking about more of those who prophesied like Isaiah and Jeremiah because there's specifics given and mainly because later on in the text, he is quoting so often Isaiah especially Isaiah 53 related to the suffering servant. Peter is. So I think he's talking more about the, the later prophets who are giving specific prophecies about the kind of suffering, which makes sense in the context, right? Because so much of 1 Peter is about suffering. So here's the third category and the one that I hold to. And I'll, I'll give you my case for that. But again, I know this part is taking a long time and I do feel like in the bigger scheme, it's really mainly an illustration of the main point, which is victory in Christ through the resurrection. But we're spending a little bit more time than we normally would, not because it holds that much weight, just because I don't want there to be, you can have varying views, but I want it to be informed. And in being informed, it needs to support the main point. We wouldn't always pause this long, but it's an incredibly difficult passage. The third one would be that he's actually dealing with fallen angels. The case here would be that after the resurrection, so not in between his death and the resurrection, but actually after the resurrection, okay? So somewhere in that period where he, you know, he's seen by Mary and he's not been glorified yet or ascended to heaven and there is still something going on different between his body, his physical body that was raised from the dead, but it's not been glorified yet and the spirit of God 
but I'll give you the case in a minute. But after the resurrection, he confronted the angels and the demons that are mentioned in the text, in Genesis 6 particularly, about their violation with human women. And I know it sounds so weird and bizarre, but I will give you the, the larger context so that you will understand. Now, here's the problem with my position on this. Peter then, in a passage that so many people have said, this is the most difficult passage in all the New Testament to really understand. And as we pointed out, some cannot understand it. And if what, what I'm leaning into as far as belief on it is right, then you know what? It actually points me to the Old Testament passage that is probably the most difficult Old Testament passage. So you kind of are doubling down on difficulty. This is no fun. I mean, it's kind of fun, but it's not fun like in a, in a way that goes, yes, this is so much confidence because of where this reference is back to. So again, this is not pre-resurrection. I would say it's post-resurrection. And so let's just lean into that at this point. And if I'm wrong, that's great. It doesn't impact the main idea and aim of the text. We have some prudence here, some freedom here. I just want it to be informed. And then you have to kind of let the weights fall where they will. Sometimes it really truly is like that, guys. And that's okay. That's where the instruction of how do we handle the word together as a church comes in. So I don't believe this is in between death and resurrection. I think it is after the resurrection. I don't believe that the language that he uses here for pneuma or pneumata, which is the language for spirit, I don't think, because nowhere else in the New Testament does it really speak of that being a disembodied, out-of-body experience, like his body is in the grave and his spirit is somewhere else doing a work. And I think those two things together, plus the language also of this word, this phrase, in which, so he says... In which, verse 19, he went and proclaimed. In which he went is incredibly important for the weight of this view for me because in which is a subsequent word. It's a word of subsequence. It means after, following. Those two things together, then. And then went is not actually a word that's really rendered in the New Testament at all as descended. Now that wouldn't bother us necessarily even for the case that I'm making because even the, the Greek Christians would have understood that the angels who rebelled at the time of Noah were put in prison in a particular holding tank, so to speak, in definitely a place that would be related to hell, but they would be thinking three-dimensionally. And I'm not sure that we're that different, that we would think three-dimensionally, that there's kind of different levels of hell, so to speak. And we certainly think of those being down, you know, just kind of like we know that north is always up. It's not, but you, know, you get the idea. R.T. France really helps with this. Again, a scholar, he says, he says, most of the time this is articulated where pneuma with flesh is used to show that Christ truly died in the flesh and in, the, in, in his earthly life and therefore was fully human. And he was raised in the spirit, both by the spirit of God, but also spiritually, again, as a forerunner. And he helped me tremendously in kind of wrapping my head around it, at least enough to be able to lean into this a little bit heavier. So as we think about the, the spirits in present, let's go ahead and, and do this. So first of all, Genesis 6, 1 through 8. If you want to turn there, it might be good for you to look at it. We don't have it on the screen, but Genesis 6, 1 through But keep your finger back in Peter because we're going to go to 2 Peter in just a minute. In Genesis chapter 6, okay, verses 1 through 8.
Now, if it doesn't immediately come to mind, um, for those of you who grew up in church, especially if you were a boy and you grew up in Sunday school and ever had this passage read, man, this was just one of the cool ones because it just sounded like, man, this is like, there's giants, there's titans. This is like Marvel before there was Marvel. So, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, which is always a reference to angelic beings. Now, some have interpreted that to be like the sons of kings from the land, but that's a stretch. So again, we take scripture and let scripture kind of give weight to this. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim who were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a condemnation. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from uh, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So this at least captures the time of Noah reference that Peter makes. Okay. And the, the case that's being made here though has to be informed again by our immediate context. Look at, now go back to 1 Peter. Look at verse 22. In our text today, verse 22 says, Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. But look at the reference that he makes on the authority that he has. Angels, authorities, powers having been subjected to him. It's a very spiritualized perspective of his authority and victory after the resurrection. I think even more weighted is go over to 2 Peter. Now again, these two, these two letters were not written that far apart at the end of Peter's life. And you start to get a feel for the themes and the doctrinal points that really inform Peter's encouragement to the local church. In 2 Peter 2, 4 through 9, here's what it says. And here he is talking about those who are false teachers. But he's wanting to encourage that in the midst of the church having to deal with false teaching that's infiltrated the church, he's wanting them to see something about the victory of Christ so that they don't fret, so that they have courage to endure. A very similar theme to what we have now. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains, okay, imprisonment of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds when, when he saw and heard then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. 
that sink in. I truly believe that if he had not first accessed the Old Testament example of angelic beings who had violated God's principles with human beings. And again, I don't know what all that looks like or how all that worked. I just know I take scripture to mean what it says. And whatever happened, it was a major issue of violation for God as a part of those who had rebelled against him, the angels, that third of the angels that went, these demons, whoever had come to have relations with flesh and blood, human women, that they were then in prison. They were put in chains and put in chains and held until a time of judgment. If he had not used that example, I think the next one would have been Sodom and Gomorrah because that's where he goes next in this lengthier defense for what the main point is of that text in 2 Peter, which is if the Lord knows how to, uh, if the Lord is not going to ignore the sin of those from old. And if he does know how to rescue, and what does he use? And this is, I think, significant for their encouragement. There were only eight rescued with Noah. There was just a lot that's mentioned, but very few. If the Lord knows how to rescue the godly, then under those circumstances, you can endure trials. You can endure suffering. And I think this really strongly informs our view of what's going on here over in, Second Peter, uh, over in 1 Peter chapter 3. The only other verse I would give you in this is Jude verse 6. You don't have to go there, but it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So here's how all this comes together, at least for me. That in encouraging them to endure their suffering and to suffer well and to suffer for the right reasons, Peter is laying forth the case of that God knows how to rescue his own. Sorry, let me pull this away. God knows how to rescue his own and God's judgment will be sure and certain for those who have disobeyed and are in rebellion. Now, this is different than the na-na-na-na-na thing simply because of this. Because we need to know in our suffering that we do not need to act as judges over those who revile us or treat us with evil. Vengeance is the Lord's. We are to live those lives that do endure suffering so that the world, those who are still going to be brought in, people that are lost would look upon us and say, why do you have this hope? And he is giving these really big, large, yes, somewhat fantastic examples of the Lord knows how to keep you. The Lord knows how to rescue you. And the Lord will absolutely not miss one ounce of judgment upon those that it is coming to. And all of this is because of the resurrection of the dead. So in this, I believe that when Christ was raised from the dead, not in between death and resurrection, but after the resurrection, that in the spirit, he went to these angels who had been held in prison because they had rebelled. And in this rebellion, as they were confined in chains, that he went and proclaimed victory because he was alive. 
And yes, I do believe it was to announce that there is a judgment coming, but at least they had all the information and they knew. You know why? Because we have things like Philippians 2, 9 through 11. But at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That three-dimensional Greco-Roman view of hell, under the earth, the dead, those who have been enchained, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And verse 22, even in our text today, says that he is there at the right hand of the Father where angels, principalities, spirits are subject to him. And if the spiritualized forces, angels and demons are subject to the Lord, and even those who have been imprisoned spiritually for a couple of thousand years, and their judgment is not missed. They can endure whoever is at, who basically, whoever is their enemy at the time. They need to endure trusting that God will enact his judgment. And he will also enact their deliverance, which is where he goes next. If we get that at least enough, the next part makes sense. Because as he's talking about Noah, I, I want to say it's almost as an aside. But he basically is talking about an instrument of God's judgment and deliverance in the same method or means, water. So again, he's reminding the people, look, at the days of Noah, we have these angels that have been imprisoned and Jesus, after the resurrection, goes and proclaims to them victory because he's risen from the dead. But even right after that, they were imprisoned, Noah, another picture of God's immediate judgment, justice, and deliverance happening at the same time, you have the waters that have been destroyed the wicked, hit reset, but also delivered eight people. In all of humanity, only eight people. Which is an encouragement because sometimes when you're suffering for righteousness sake, you can feel so isolated and alone. And I think one thing Peter is doing here is to say, you are heard, you are seen, you are known by him because he always delivers those who are his own unto victory. But you do understand that sometimes that victory means death in this life. This is the point where I get sad for those who hold to the prosperity gospel. Because there's such a depth and a richness here that if they're looking for heaven on earth and to use the gospel to try to bolster better houses and homes and savings or whatever else and health, what do they miss out on on the ability to actually endure the suffering that is absolutely going to happen to them? Then, man, Peter, he associates baptism with the waters of Noah. But here's where I think it helps the most. When you look at the text, and he says, baptism, verse 21, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to, good, to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Since he is saying it corresponds to the flood, I don't think that means that he's saying that all Christian baptism is to be seen necessarily in this way. I think what he's correlating is baptism does have this element to it, which is it's an instrument, not a mode. And here's what I mean. It's not a mode or a means of actual salvation. It's an instrument to show God's means of salvation which is God delivering only through faith and through righteousness. 
What do I mean by that? Well, what happens in baptism? When you are buried, there's actually two things going on. You're showing judgment to your unrighteousness. You are showing the death, the killing of your unrighteous deeds that deserve judgment, just like Pharaoh's army, just like the evil of those that occurred during the times of Noah. And when you are raised from the dead, you are actually showing forth the resurrection of Christ, which is the ultimate point of victory over those who were put in prison back at the time of Noah. And actually shows too, figuratively so to speak, that when the ark came out of the floodwaters, it was also the means of deliverance. So simultaneous you have this act of judgment and an act of deliverance all through the same instrument, which is water. The other reason I would say this is not about what we call baptismal regeneration that, that like some old school Church of Christ may believe or others that um, even some old hardcore Lutherans would hold to this. And some of you come from those backgrounds where you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Baptism is an act of obedience. But in scripture, it is clear that it is a symbol or it is a seal of what has already occurred in salvation. It is not a rite R-I-T-E, or a, a procedure for you to confirm by your own works your salvation. It shows the reality of what has already occurred. And it is an act of obedience. So basically, for those who refuse to show that Christ has saved them, there's reason to doubt whether or not they've genuinely been saved. But they wouldn't be unsaved because they weren't baptized. They would be unsaved because they are not willing to show that Christ has already done the work. Again, guys, this has to serve the bigger purpose. And the bigger purpose then is summarized in verse 22, which we've referred to a couple of times. Who has gone, Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So you have the death of Christ, you have the resurrection of Christ, and he then mentions the ascension of Christ. We have a really difficult illustration in the middle of some things that happen spiritually between the resurrection and the ascension. But even that is to serve that Jesus Christ will not miss one bit, even in your experience of suffering. He will judge the wicked, those who are persecuting you, those who are hurting you the most, that are unrighteous, that are evil, that are wicked. You don't have to do that judgment yourself. Surely as he did it with angels that had been in prison for a really long time and he pronounced victory and pronounced their judgment. You don't have to worry about that part. But the other part is, and I think this is really what it serves is, it's not for you to think about, oh boy, they're going to get theirs as much as be encouraged. He delivered Noah. He delivered Lot as we read in 2 Peter. He will deliver you. And it's all because of the resurrection, because we have a powerful Christ who's been raised from the dead, who doesn't have to die again, who doesn't have to live again, so to speak, in this world to satisfy any requirements. He's already done it. And then he rose from the dead. It's sealed and secured forever the victory that is for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are now made righteous because of Christ. Because of this victory, that's where we can have the courage then to suffer well. We know our sins are forgiven. He died once for sin so that we would be brought to God. If you know your sins are forgiven, that also means you're free not to sin in your response to suffering. You're free then not to have to be evil in your response to evil 
or to have a gotcha zinger or to be sharp or edgy in your voice or sarcastic to try to inflict injury. You don't have to respond in a sinful way. You've been freed from that because Christ has died for your sins. You know that justice will prevail because he has pronounced justice and judgment even over all the spiritual principalities and entities, demons. That his judgment is sure. It doesn't seem swift to us, but it is certain. The resurrection promises this. And because all of his enemies will be subject to him, and the resurrection has proved this, even in the ascension, as all of the entities are then subject to him, we then know that we will be with him forever. As surely as he is seated at the right hand of the Father, we will be seated with him as heirs. Which, doesn't Peter refer, that, refer to that in chapter 1 about having an inheritance that is untouchable by the things that happen in this world? That he's preserving for us and in the meantime he's making us ready for that inheritance? It's almost like he goes back and forth between, look, here's the gritty reality of this world, but let me remind you of the world that's to come. Let that cadence remind you. And guys, in a sense, this is what we do on Sunday. We remind each other of the glorious victory that we have in Christ through the resurrection of a home that we don't have realized just yet. And that as we are together, we remind each other on Sundays especially of this greater eternal home that we are longing for, to be emboldened to suffer well together during the week and other times, to be ready to make a defense and share and be evangelistic while we are waiting for him to come. And then we go through it. Sometimes we go through it and really have difficult weeks and it's a week of Mondays and it's terrible. And then we come back again to remind ourselves and we have the same cadence that Peter is introducing to these churches. Here's a gritty reality. Christ is still on the throne. He is still preparing a place for you. Keep going. And the resurrection has proven this to be true and it has secured it forever. And as long as Christ is on the throne, these things remain true for us and we can endure well for the long haul. If you are here this morning and you have never come to a place where you have seen that Christ died for your sins, maybe you're realizing, I am a sinner. I'm suffering, but I'm not suffering because I'm doing the right thing or because I believe in God. I'm suffering because I keep trying to do things my way. Let the Lord, I don't like that phrase, let that have its effect. The Lord is good to allow us to beat our heads up against walls, to realize that we are aimless, we are pointless, we are helpless, and we are sinners. Come to him today. Have faith that Christ did this once for you. And even though it may not spare you suffering in this world, it will give you reason for it. But you'll at least have the promise that one day suffering will all be away because Christ has been raised from the dead and his kingdom is waiting. Our God, we thank you for these truths. I thank you for the wrestling match of hard passages and what it forces us to lean into the most, which is what is clearest and Lord, what we do know is clear is that you have died for the sins of men, that you are the righteous, we are the unrighteous, and yet those of us in you have been made righteous. And we are no longer unrighteous because Christ is in us. And because of that, we have the certainty, because of the resurrected Christ, of a place, a home, an inheritance that's to come. But Lord, help that to affect us now. Help us to put this into practice, to know that we are sure that because you are alive, that you will judge all. 
that we can be thankful that our judgment has been absorbed in the, on the cross because of Christ. But Lord, for those that are evil, for those tyrants and those dictators who are seeking to be God themselves, even someone like Putin who, unless he repents and comes to true faith in Christ, judgment will be his. And while he's breathing, we want to pray for miracles that would testify to your great glory. But Lord, we can still rest assured that you will judge all. And because you're alive, no matter how hopeless and painful this world becomes, we know that ultimately the greatest pain and difficulty only leads us to true rest, to true peace. So Lord, we, we want to take from this passage our courage today to live well, respond well, and to be ready to make a defense for why we have hope while we suffer. Glorify your name in and through us, Lord. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.